Well, as we get started today, I want you to imagine what it was like to be one of Jesus' 12 disciples. You, you spent three and a half years with him. Imagine the things that you heard him say and the things that you saw him do. Now I want you to imagine this. Imagine he says to you, I'm going to give you the opportunity to ask me to teach you any of the things that you've seen over these past three and a half years. What would you ask him to teach you? Online, go ahead and type it there in the chat. Good morning to you. For those of you that are here live with us in the room, welcome to you as well. What would you ask Jesus to teach you to do? Go ahead, go ahead shout out. What, what, what would you ask him? I mean, you've seen all these things. What, what would you ask? What would you ask? All right, patience, uh, yeah, all kinds of things going on. Now, be honest. Some of you, the first thing you go is, Jesus, teach me how to turn water into wine, right? <laughs> Others, you're going, man, the, the way my kids or my grandkids eat, I would ask Jesus to teach me how to multiply food like he did with the loaves and the fish. I mean, they're eating me out of house and home. I would want to know how to do that. Save some money on the grocery bill. Others of you are going, you know what? I have a, a loved one passed away from, from cancer or another disease. I would want to know how to, how to heal people. Yet others of you are going, I would want to know how to cast out demons because quite frankly, some of my coworkers are a little suspicious. Now those would all be great choices, wouldn't they? But here's what's amazing. When Jesus gave them the opportunity, the disciples said, Jesus, here's what we want you to teach us. Teach us how to pray. Think about that. Everything that they had seen him do for three and a half years, the thing that stuck out in their mind the most was prayer. Jesus, please teach us how to pray. There was something about Jesus' prayers, the, the power of his prayers that they said, we need to know how to do that. And so Jesus teached them not only how to pray, but then the, the very essence and the nature of prayer itself. In one of the scriptures we looked at last week, it's found in John chapter 15, verse 7. Jesus says, if you stay joined to me and my word becomes a part of you, then you can pray for whatever you want and your prayer will be answered. You know, just like any good parent, Jesus, God, he wants to answer your prayers. He wants to say yes. But like a good parent, he's only going to say yes to the things that are going to be wise, that are going to be healthy for you, the things that are going to be a part of what the bigger family picture is all about. Now, I know this goes, like, flies in the face of what so many people think about God, because they think about God, they think he's like this big Grinch up in the sky, that he's out to get you in some way, that he isn't for you, that he doesn't want you to have any fun, but nothing can be further from the truth. According to this book, the Word of God paints this beautiful picture of God as a heavenly Father, a good Father who loves you and cares for you and wants the absolute best for you. And so He wants to say yes. He wants to say yes. Unless, again, it's going to be something that is harmful for you or harmful to His family. And so what we're doing in this series is we're looking at four prayers that God always answers yes to. Four different prayers. And as I said last week, this isn't being presumptuous. 
This is actually a promise from God Himself that if you'll pray and ask anything according to my revealed will, and it's healthy for you, it's wise for you, and it's a part of the bigger picture of my family, I will say yes to it, he says. Now last week we looked at asking for wisdom. That if we'll ask God for wisdom, He will say yes to that prayer. Today I want to talk to you about temptation. That if we ask God to deliver us from temptation, to provide a, a means of escape from temptation, He will always answer that prayer, absolutely yes. Now last week we started talking about wisdom in a garden. And today I want to start by talking with temptation in a garden. But this time it's not going to be the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. It's actually going to be the Garden of Gethsemane with Jesus Himself. Now, to understand why Jesus was there in the garden, you need to have a little bit of context. The Garden of Gethsemane story takes place right after Jesus' last supper with his disciples. This is where he had instituted feet washing and, and he had instituted what we call communion. So that's what happens right before. What's going to happen right after the Garden of Gethsemane is Jesus is going to be arrested. He's going to be tried. He's going to be beaten. He's going to be mocked. He's going to be spit upon. And then he's going to be executed on a cross. So what is it that happens after the Last Supper, but yet before the cross that can provide hope for you and I? Well, to understand that, you have to know why was it that Jesus was even going into the garden in the first place? And the answer is, he was going to the garden with his disciples in order to pray. And very specifically, he said, you guys need to pray that you're not led into temptation. You see, he knew that the heat was about to be turned up, that he was going to be arrested. And he knew that when the Romans started to persecute him and the Jews started to persecute him, that the disciples, they were going to be tempted to just walk away from everything that had happened over the previous three and a half years, to just turn their back on the mission of what they've been trying to do. And so he says, you need to pray, you need to keep watch so that you don't give in to temptation. Jesus withdraws maybe 10 or 15 yards away from him. He begins to pray himself for his own temptation, which I'll talk to you about in just a second. But this had been a long, emotional, draining week. And that day, especially as he's there at the Last Supper and he's saying, I've got this new covenant, a covenant that's in my body and my blood. Emotionally, there's just such a toll on him. And so we pick up the story then in Luke chapter 22, verse 46. We read this. Jesus got up from praying and went over to his disciples. And they were what? They were, they were asleep and worn out from being so sad. Why are you sleeping? He asked them. Get up and pray so that you will not give in to temptation. So this is the second time now that he's told them, don't give in to temptation. You've got you've to pray. Because if you're not going to stand by me, then you're going to run from me. You're going to give up on me. By repeating this command, he's making it clear that prayer is the key to not giving in. And the exact same thing is true for you. Temptation is coming for you. And temptation comes in many different forms. But the key to overcoming temptation is prayer. You have got to pray. That's why he commands it to him twice. Pray that you're not tempted. And part of the reason Jesus told them to pray to not be tempted was he was being tempted himself right there in the garden. Now, 
Jesus knew what was about to happen to him. And the temptation was to go, you know what? I'm God. I didn't do anything to deserve this. I don't want to have to suffer on a cross. And so the temptation was just to walk away from the whole thing. He even prays that to the Father. He says, Father, if there's any way to take this cup of suffering away from me, then please do it. But yet, not my will be done. Let your will be done. Now, I know for some of you, the the very thought of Jesus being tempted makes you a little bit uncomfortable. You're like, Jesus was tempted? I, I don't know about all that. But that leads to the first point I want to make to you today. If you're taking notes there on your outline, there's a little button here in the upper right hand, uh, uh, yeah, right hand corner there for you guys online called Talk Notes. You can press that. For those of you here live with us, you can go to uh, our website, exponential.church. All the Talk Notes are there as well. But here, here's the first blank for you. Temptation is not a sin. Acting on it is. Again, temptation is not a sin. Acting on it is. This actually wasn't even the first time that Jesus was tempted. In Matthew chapter 4, he is tempted three different times by Satan while Jesus is out in the desert fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. It's there in the desert. Jesus' body may have been physically weak from all the fasting, but yet he was spiritually strong. Even though he was tempted by Satan, he did not give in to the temptation. Temptation is not a sin. Acting on it is. So don't beat yourself up if you're tempted by various sin. It's only when you actually give into it that you've crossed the line. And so we've got to learn to pray in the same way that Jesus did. But here's our issue. Oftentimes, the thing that tempts us, we think is greater than Jesus promised to us of staying faithful and righteous. We think that the the fruit, that the reward of giving in to the temptation is greater than God's promises to us of what will happen if we're obedient. So we get tempted so easy. And we give in so easy. Why is that? Why do we give in so easily? Well, it's because sin is fun, isn't it? Sin is gratifying. You have that instant gratification. And I've said this before. If sin isn't fun for you, you're doing it wrong. Sin is wrong, it's bad, but yet isn't instantly, don't you feel that gratification, that satisfaction that comes from it? We as humans, we we desire that that instant fix, that quick fix like right now. And we fail to to think about the long-term impact of our disobedience. We want it, and we want it right now. It ends up hurting us long term. And so that's why this prayer to God to help me to escape temptation is one that He will always, always answer for you. Because again, He's a good parent. He's a good father. And He doesn't want you to be hurt long term. And He knows that short term, this is a really bad decision. Parents, you've seen this with your kids, haven't you? that you know that the decisions that they're making short-term, that, oh yeah, they're going to have fun with that short-term, but man, long-term, this is bad news. And so if that's so obvious to you as parents, we got to realize that the same thing is obvious to God, that He's going, oh, my children, no. No, don't give in to this temptation. 
Yes, it's going to be fun for a minute or two. But long term, it's going to hurt you. So don't give in. Pray to me, he says, that you don't give in to temptation. And I will provide a means of escape. Now here's the ironic part. Even though that's God's heart and desire, oftentimes when we do give in to temptation and we end up sinning, we end up blaming God for it. We go, well, if God didn't want that for me, he wouldn't have like put that like right there in front of me to see. So we blame God. But that's ridiculous. Solomon, who we talked about last week, the wisest man who ever lived, here's what he says in Proverbs chapter 19, verse 3. It says, people ruin their lives by their own stupidity. So why does God always get blamed? And then James, the brother of Jesus, in James 1.13, he writes this, don't blame God when you're tempted. God cannot be tempted by evil, and He doesn't use evil to tempt others. Now look, I, I'll be honest, I've made the mistake in the past myself of giving in to temptation and trying to blame God for it. But the problem isn't God. The problem isn't the other people that are in your life. The problem isn't your circumstances. You know who the problem is? You and me. It's when we give in to our own selfish desires of I want it and I want it right now. And I'm not going to wait for the promises of God because I want that fixed right here and right now. And so we can't give in to sin. We can't give in to the temptation. James, he, he goes on then to describe this sort of vicious process that happens when we give in to our desires. Look at what he writes in James 1, 14-15. Temptation comes from our own desires, which entice us and drag us away. These desires give birth to sinful actions. And when sin is allowed to grow, it gives birth to death. Now let's look again at what he writes there. That whole process of giving in to temptation. And I've broken it down into five words to begin with the letter D just to make it a little bit easier for you to remember. So here's the first thing there on your outline. It starts with desire. You desire something that you shouldn't have, that you really, really want. You shouldn't have it, but yet you want it anyway. And so there's this desire and that leads to the next thing, which is deception. In your mind, you begin to sort of justify why this would be okay for you. That, well, everybody's doing it. Or it's not going to hurt anybody. Or I'll do it just this one time. Which then leads to the next D word, which is design. Once you have deceived your mind, now your mind switches to how can I get away from, with this? You start to put together a game plan of how to, to make it work. How to cover it all up. Which then leads to disobedience. And this is then where you've crossed the line now it isn't just that you've been tempted. Now you have, you've crossed that line into disobedience. You've crossed that line into sin and you have acted on your desires. And here's the problem. As soon as you sin, lightning doesn't zap you from the sky. And you think, ah, I got away with it. There's not immediate consequences for your disobedience. And so you go, since I got away with it this time, I could probably get away with it the next time, and the next time, and the next time. And it becomes a habit of sin. And you know what happens from that point? 
You think since I got away with that little sin, I can get away with a little greater sin. And you start to do that one over and over and over again until that one becomes a habit. And you think, got away with that. And what do you do? You start the next one. This whole process starts all over again. Desire leads to deception, which leads to design, which leads to disobedience. And finally then, it leads to death. And that's not my word. That's James' word for us here from the very word of God. And I'm not just talking about physical death here. I'm talking about spiritual death as well. That you have said, you know what? I'm going to intentionally cut myself off from God because I'd rather have an eternity in hell than have to sacrifice a little bit right here and right now to be obedient to God. And thus the old saying then is true. That our thoughts become our actions. Our actions become our habits. Our habits become our character. And our character becomes our destiny. Let me say that again. Your thoughts become your actions. Your actions become your habits. Your habits become your character. And your character becomes your destiny. I've shared this in the past. Nobody's going to end up in hell and go, oh my goodness, how in the world did I end up here? Because we all know when we're being disobedient to the Father. When we've messed up. But again, we think that, well, since there wasn't consequences immediately, I can just continue in this and I'll be okay. The truth is you won't. You knew full well that you were rejecting Jesus over and over and over again, that you were choosing short-term pleasure rather than the long-term gain. And that's going to hurt for eternity. So that's why Jesus says your preemptive strike against temptation, against getting into this whole process of sin, your preemptive strike is to pray. Pray to God to lead me not into temptation, but to deliver me from the evil one. You got to pray. Because there's power in prayer. Now prayer is not the only thing you need to do to combat sin. So I want to take the remainder of our time today to just look at five different steps that you can take to combating sin. Here's the first step. I must pray to God. You're going, uh, Gilbert, you've already been talking about that the whole message so far. Why are you listing that again? And the reason is very simple. I think we have too often made prayer sort of the pat answer for everything. That we just sort of give it lip service. That, oh yeah, we, we need to pray about it, but then we'll do the real stuff. Do you understand what I'm saying? We have made prayer our, our, our last resort instead of our first priority. Remember back to what I said with the disciples? They said, there's one thing, Jesus, man, we want you to teach us how to do, and it was how to pray. There was something about the prayers of Jesus that they said, man, when he prays, things get done. When he prays, man, evil flees. When he prays, oh my goodness, miracles happen. There is something about his prayers. Man, we want that kind of power for our own lives. 
That's not what we do. We don't pray with fervency. We don't pray with power. We pray as a last resort. It can't be that way. Did you know that 33 different times in the Gospels, we read that Jesus withdrew from the crowds. He withdrew even sometimes from his disciples just to pray. Now, I want you to think about this. Jesus was God in the flesh. And if Jesus, as God, needed to spend that much time communicating with the Father, talking to the Father, and He's God, how much more so do you and I need to be praying to the Father and asking for Him to help? And not just with temptation, but everything in life. Again, prayer cannot be your last resort. It needs to be your first priority. And so when it comes to temptation, what do you need to do first? You need to, you need to pray. Number two, I must know God's Word. And knowing God's Word is twofold. First of all, you need to know God's Word because it's going to tell you what sin is. So you'll know the things that you need to avoid. That, oh, well, I'm being tempted to do something that I know God wouldn't have me to do. Now, I know some of you are already finding the loophole in that. You're going, well, (laughs) if I don't read God's Word, I won't know what sin is. And then I can get away with all of it. Now, there's actually a Greek word for that that's called hogwash. (laughs) Listen, it's just like the laws of the land here. Just because you don't know that something is a law of the state of Pennsylvania doesn't mean that you can get away with it and go, well, that doesn't apply to me because I just didn't know, officer, that we weren't supposed to do that. The officer's going to go, well, you should have known. Now there's consequences. It's the same way with God. You've got to get in here every single day. Continue to read His Word so you know what it is that you're supposed to be doing or not doing. The second reason you want to read God's Word is the more you read it, the more you're going to start to internalize it. The more that when you're out in a situation and you are tempted, you're able to go, oh, wait a second, I've read about that before. No, 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 Satan. (laughs) No, that's not for me. In other words, the more you read it, the more you start to actually memorize it. And you're able to use God's Word as a weapon against Satan. This is your sword to destroy the enemy. But you got to know it. Here's what David writes in Psalm 119.11. He says, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Again, the more you read it, the more it's going to become internalized. You know, one of our worship leaders here, JT, he's over in Iraq right now. And he's in a, in a battle zone, right? Could you imagine him walking outside the walls of the compound there and he comes across some Taliban or, you know, whoever it is that they're fighting right now. And they like have guns on him. And JT's like, oh, you know, I didn't really think I was going to come across you guys today. Would you mind, give me a second, let me go back to the base, get my weapon, then I'll come out and fight you. You think that's how it's going to work? No, they're going to shoot them dead on the spot. It's the same way with you guys. You walk out into the world all the time. You walk out into the battlefield all the time. And Satan comes to attack you. And you can't go, oh, Satan, I really wasn't expecting to see you here today. Um, I tell you what, can you wait until I get home and I can look up a scripture so I know how to defend myself against you right now? No, Satan's going to eat your lunch. 
He's going to have his way with you. You have got to have your sword always at the ready. And that's why the more you read this, the more it's going to get in here. So that when temptation comes, you're right away ready with the scripture of Satan. Here's what God's word has to say about this. You know how to resist the temptation. That's exactly what Jesus did. Every single time he was tempted by Satan there in the desert, you know what he said to Satan? It is written. And then he would quote a scripture. Scripture is the thing that's going to help you. You're going to pray and ask God to help you, to give you the power to escape from it, and you're going to quote Scripture. Use it as your weapon against Satan. Here's another promise then from God's Word, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. The temptations in your life are no different from what others experience, and God is faithful. He will not allow the temptation to be more than you can stand. When you are tempted, he will also provide a way of escape so that you can endure it. Look, I don't know what it is that may be tempting you. It could be something to, you know, unethically with money, or maybe to cheat on your spouse, or to overeat, or overdrink, or maybe even it's just something like, you know, the temptation to keep up with the Joneses. Whatever it is, the promise is clear here in God's word. He will provide you a way out. And the way out starts with praying and the way out starts with knowing God's word and being able to quote it so that you can resist the temptation. There's a third thing then that you need to do, number three, and that is I must envision the consequences of sin. When desire comes into our mind, the only thing we usually think about is, oh, here's the benefits of sin. This is going to make me feel good or I'll be relaxed, or this is going to make me financially stable in some way. What we fail to do is think about the long-term consequences. In other words, we fail to think about what is the end result if I get involved in this sin, if I give in to the temptation and it leads to sin, what is the long-term consequences of it? We just fail to even think about things like that. And so yes, God has given you prayer as a way of escape, He's given you his word as a way of his escape. But guess what else he's given you? He's given you a brain. A brain to actually think. To think about what is going to happen if I give in to this temptation. What are the consequences going to be? Now many years ago, at my uh, previous church, before I came here at Exponential, a man came into the office for counseling. And the reason he came in for counseling is his wife had caught him looking at pornography. But not just any pornography, he was actually looking at gay porn. And when I say gay porn, I'm not talking that, you know, this is a guy and he's like watching girl on girl. This is a guy that's watching guy on guy. And so not only was she shocked by, you know, that he was looking at pornography, but now the type of pornography. And it came out then that as I talked to him, that he was actually at the point he was being tempted to now go hire a male prostitute so he could experience what it was he was seeing on the screen. So in other words, he was deep in sin at this point. And it was getting deeper and deeper. And again, this is just how deceptive temptation is, because it started not with gay porn, or the temptation to, to go see a male prostitute. It started just with seeing some magazines that he shouldn't have seen. And, and not even pornogra uh, pornographic things, just images in magazines that led him on a path of, okay, now into pornography, like regular pornography, and then it just 
he said it just kept getting more and more and more perverse until now it's gay pornography and this temptation to hire a male prostitute. And so I was sitting there and I'm counseling with them and I'm talking about some of the things, you know, praying and, and we're talking about God's word and what God's word has to say about all this. And then the spirit led me to say something to them that I still actually to this day encourage people to do because it's been such a powerful tool. And I said to him, here's what I want you to do between now and next week when we get together again. I want you to get a spiral notebook. And I want you to write in it every single negative consequence that will happen if you continue down this path. Now here's the deal. Anytime I do counseling with you or anybody else, all I can do is give you what God has given me to share with you. What you do with it then is completely up to you. I can't force anybody to change. And so there's many times I do counseling and people just, they don't listen. But this particular guy, he was so broken in his sin and he so desperately wanted to get a way out because he felt trapped in it. He's like, anything I need to do, I'll do. And sure enough, the next week when he came in for that next time, he had like, you know, those spiral notebooks that, you know, they're pretty thick. He had about a quarter of that filled with things he had written out of here's the negative consequences that will happen. And he got very, very detailed. Things like that he would lose his marriage. And he didn't just write that I'll get a divorce. He then listed every negative thing that would happen because now he is a divorcee. And he just writes it all out. And he writes about how maybe his daughters will end up hating him. And one of the things I'll never forget that he wrote in the book was that maybe my daughters will hate me so much that when they get older and they go to get married, they won't even ask me to walk them down the aisle. And he listed things about his job, about how if it continued in this path, he could be arrested and he could go to jail and he could lose his job. And he talked about what that would look like of, of not having an income and, and some of the negative consequences that could come from that. He wrote down how it was impacting his relationship with God. And how if he continued down this path, he was on the road to hell. He even wrote how because his sin was so consuming of his life that it was keeping him from doing things, positive things for God. And so he wrote out things of, here's my gifts and my skills and my talents and abilities that I'm supposed to be using for God out in the community to help people. So here's the people in the community that are being hurt because of my sin. Again, he went very, very detailed into this. A quarter of a, uh, of a whole notebook just full of writing all this out. And so he continued to, to pray. He continued to get into God's Word. But the other thing he did was every single day he would read every single line that he wrote in that notebook. And literally, it scared him straight. Thank you. I could also say it scared the hell out of him. And that would have worked as well. <laughs> Literally. And to this day, not only has he gotten rid of that, but his marriage has been restored. His daughters are grown. They're not quite to the marrying age yet, but when they do decide to marry, dad will walk them down the aisle. All because he took the time to think about here are the long-term consequences if I stay involved in this sin. And once that reality check came for him, 
it helped to change his life. And I'm encouraging you to do the exact same thing. Get a notebook and write down what it is that will happen if you continue in your sin. And you're like, ah, Gilbert, it's not going to lead to something like that. Well, let me ask you a question. Do you think on the day he first looked at even that magazine, that he's like, one day I hope I like hire a male prostitute? Do you think that's what was going through his mind? No. But sin is a slippery slope. Nobody sets out to become an alcoholic. Nobody sets out to become a drug addict. Nobody sets out to be addicted to pornography. Nobody sets out to have an affair. Nobody sets out to to cheat their company out of, of company money or funds. To embezzle. That's not where it starts. It starts with giving in to a little small temptation of, ah, it's just a little bit. It's not much. It's not going to hurt anybody. But again, because there aren't those immediate consequences, that there isn't that lightning that zaps you out of the sky, you think you're getting away with it, and that leads to greater and greater and greater sin. So here's what I want you to do. Whatever your temptation is that you're tempted with right now, I want you to think about long-term what will happen if it goes all the way down the path. Write it out. Write it out in a notebook. Here's who it's going to impact. My family, my friends, my church, my co-workers, my neighbors. Who's going to be impacted if you continue to do what it is that you're doing and not saying no to temptation. Here's the fourth thing then. That is, I can't isolate myself from others who can help. Now, we talked about this last week about isolation, so I'm not going to take a long time to belabor it, but I did find a great quote from Andy Stanley that I think relates to what we're talking about here today, and it's so powerful. Look at this. He says, we fear the consequences of confession because we have yet to experience the consequences of concealment. Let me read that again. Let it sink in. We fear the consequences of confession because we have yet to experience the consequences of concealment. You know, in the same way that Adam and Eve tried to conceal their sin, they tried to hide their sin from each other and from God, we do the exact same thing. We try to conceal things. We try to hide it. Listen, you're not hiding anything from God. And you know what? While maybe... Physically, you're not isolating yourself from other people. Oftentimes, mentally and emotionally and spiritually, we've isolated ourselves from others. Why? Because we're so ashamed of our sin. And we think that, you know, if, if I confess this, man, it's going to hurt me. It's, it's going to get out and, and man, it, it's going to be bad news. So I'll be hurt by this. But it's actually the opposite. Look at what James writes in James 5.16. Confess your sins to each other. And pray for each other so that you may be what? So that you may be healed. James says, when you confess your sins one to another, you will be healed. That's opposite of what we think. Like, oh no, I, I can't, I can't tell this to people. But I didn't say tell it to everybody. 
Again, this is why we tell you every single week, you need to be involved in a life group. You need to be in a group. Because no, you don't want to confess your sin to the whole world. But you do need to have three to five people that you're so close with that you can tell them anything. And there's such power in that of just getting it out there. How many of you ever heard of somebody, or maybe even you've had an experience yourself, that once something got found out, that they're like, oh man, actually, I'm glad it's just out in the open now. It's just like a monkey off my back. Have you ever heard that before? Maybe even experienced it yourself. So we've seen that. We know it. So it's the same way for us. And again, I'm not saying to confess it to everybody, but find that three to five people that you can share anything with because there's such freedom in that. You know what oftentimes happens? You confess something and they go, you know what? (laughs) I'm being tempted by the same thing. Let's hold each other accountable. Let's help each other. Let's grow together here. That'll never happen as long as you keep your sin isolated. Number five then. I must flee from temptation. Now typically I don't tell you to run from problems. Because running from problems is not a good thing. But in this case, this is exactly what you should do. It's a scriptural thing that when temptation comes, you need to run from it as fast as you can. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 22, Paul writes to his young disciple Timothy, he says, run from anything that stimulates youthful lust. Instead, pursue righteous living, faithfulness, love, and peace. Enjoy the companionship of those who call on the Lord with pure hearts. So what's he saying? Run from temptation. Run from sin. And who do you run to? You run to your group. You run to the people that are going to help you. And so that's a major part of the game plan for when temptation strikes. So how do you get a whole game plan for temptation? It starts with prayer. If you pray and ask God to help lead you from temptation, to provide the means of escape, this is a prayer He will always, always answer. That's just a promise right from God's Word. So take Him at His Word. And learn to pray more often than you ever have, with more fervency than you ever have, with more power than you ever have. Remember, the same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead lives inside of you. You have God's Spirit in you to give you the strength and the power and the courage that you need. So ask the Spirit to help you, to give you the boldness or the courage or whatever it is that you need, the strength to stand up to temptation, the the courage to run and flee from temptation. Whatever it is, the Spirit's there to help you. Now, just as we did last week, instead of me praying for you, I'm actually going to have you pray because, again, this series is four prayers that God always answers. So I want you to pray this prayer. Today's message resonated with you. You got something out of it, and you can pray this sincerely. Then just repeat these words after me. Lord, I want to talk with you more so that I'm being tempted even less than I am now. Your turn. And when I am tempted, help me to once again turn to you and trust that you will help me find a way out without the temptation turning into sin.
I trust Your Word and I want to live according to Your will for my life. So help me to run from temptation as quickly as possible. Father, I ask this with confidence because I know this is a prayer you will always answer. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.